Bismillah wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wa ala nawayna ta'allamu wa ta'alimu wa nafa'u wa intifa' wa tathakkara wa tathkir wa al-ifadata wa al-istifadah wa rahatara tamasika bi kitabillah wa sunnat rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa dua'a ila al-huda wa dalala ala al-khair ibtigha'a wa jhillahi ta'ala wa mardatihi wa kurbi wa thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala I apologize for the classroom change they are Installing a whole bunch of things in the musalla, uh, new lights and a whole bunch of other things. So please bear with us. I know it's a bit cramped in here. Inshallah, we're going to continue on our study of this text written by Imam Ramli titled Bughat al Ikhwan wa Riyadat al Sabyan. And it has been rendered into English by Sheikh Abdul Aziz Ahmed. And he titled his work, titled his work Educating Children. Classical Advice for Modern Times. Um, as we'd mentioned in the last session, I highly recommend that everybody get a copy. Um, we tend to only remember uh, a little bit of the actual class itself, and you'll find a lot of benefits in this work and that you can come back to time and time again. And that his subtitle, which is that of Classical Advice for Modern Times, is very telling. And there's something that is very much a part of the modern world. And in general, there has been a break with the past. And that relates specifically to our deen in a very important area, although it relates to a lot of areas, but one of the most important areas is this idea of the transmission of virtue. And what you really see in our time is a breakdown and a transmission of virtue. Yes, and a whole bunch of other things as well. This applies to so many different spheres of our religion. But for the sake of raising children and for the sake of trying ourselves just to that become good people and that be people of character and virtue, is that we have to recognize that there's been a break in the transmission of virtue. And one of the things that you could say is that the more that the world progresses and the closer that you are to the centers of that progression is that the greater the break in this transmission. And this is something intuitive, really. You don't even have to prove that. This is something that we all know. Uh, many of us that have had parents or grandparents that have come from Muslim countries, we see this with our own eyes. You look at the difference between the generation in which we live and the generation before us or the generation before them and one of the amazing things is that you find is that throughout the centuries, the way that Islam had this incredible ability not only to accommodate, but also to affect culture. And so that the culture itself encapsulated very important parts of the deen. And this is why we have to be very careful in this conversation of deen versus culture, religion versus culture, because it's not that simple. It's actually a very nuanced topic. And oftentimes culture, in, in, in many ways, for, for in arguably, that um, the vast majority of it was good, that it encapsulated this ability to transmit the deen informally. And so there's just certain things that you learned without going to the madrasa. You learned it at home. You learn manners that pertain to eating. You learn how to speak to people. You learn certain things that you're not supposed to do. You learn certain things 
that they would say in the Arabic language are just aib, oof, you just don't do that. And that you learn certain things that you're supposed to do because you see your older brothers and older sisters doing those things. You see your parents doing those things with their parents and so forth and so on. And much more could be said about this, but it's absolutely important that we recognize that our time there's been a breakdown in the transmission of virtue. And the more the world progresses, the worse the situation becomes and the more severe the predicament that we find ourselves in. Now, it's not an option to give up. So saying this is that not to lead us into despair. On the contrary, it's to make us aware of the situation and to motivate us to do what it is that we can do. Because definitely there are things that we can still do for our own selves and for our own children. So having said that, uh, today we're going to begin <clears throat> with the first lines of the poem. And um, I will read the Arabic with the English translation. And then um, we're, I'm likely just to go through most of this text by reading it. And um, there might be certain sections that we skip over. But I think this is the most effective way to go through this. And we will allow, bi'ithnillahi uh, ta'ala, a time at the end of the session for uh, discussion, questions, and uh, comments and anything else that uh, you all would like to contribute, bithnillah. So we're on page 15 for those that have the book. And it starts with the words, Alhamdulillahi wali alhamdi muwaffaq al-khalqi li kulli rushdi. All praise is to the one who deserves all praise, the one who makes humankind amenable to guidance. Ala alladhi bihi alayna an'ama hamdan yu'umma al-alda wa sama for what He has bestowed upon us, a praise that encompasses the earth and the sky. And after what we said, come salutations upon the Prophet and his family and companions. And following on, or you could say to proceed, Know that the education of children, ta'deeb, the education of children from the initial stages is a great affair. And certainly Al-Ghazali made that clear, and he is an ocean of knowledge true in his advice. He encouraged in the Ihyanumiddin the responsibility of parents towards their children. So, all texts begin after Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim with Alhamdulillah. And um, that this is the traditional way that all books in Islam, all manuals, all texts, this is the traditional way that they begin. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. And so the Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, there is a hadith that says, is that no affair of importance that will not begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, except that it will be free, it will be severed from blessing. Um, and so that this is something that we want to do. All important affairs, we want to begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And we oftentimes don't realize the importance of our religious vocabulary. All of these incredible words that we have in Arabic that literally allow every aspect of our life to transform into worship. 
and we don't notice it, but this even catches oftentimes the eye and ear of uh, someone who might not be of the same faith when they listen in, where they'll notice that, that we mention Allah a lot. If you just listen to a Muslim conversation, they're constantly saying, MashaAllah, Tabarakallah, InshaAllah, SubhanAllah, Ajib, MashaAllah. We're using all of these different words. And that this is of the utmost importance. And there's hardly something that we could experience except that there is a dua for that or some type of expression whereby which that thing becomes something of the deen. And um, if you would just list all of these blessed phrases, Tabarakallah, MashaAllah, that there uh, are so many of them and it really allows us to live every aspect of our life religiously. And that the most important one is Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim And why? Because this is the way that Allah Ta'ala's book begins. The Qur'an begins with Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim And then after Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So when we say Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim we could have a whole class or series of classes about the extent of the meaning of Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim but essentially what we're doing is, is recognizing is that Allah is the originator of the heavens and the earth. All of creation came into existence through His mercy, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and He is the originator. Is it without that Allah Ta'ala bringing everything into existence, nothing would be here. And it is as simple as that. And so all knowledge ultimately is contained in Bismillahir Rahman Rahim. And what we are recognizing then, uh, based upon that fact, is that we are seeking the assistance of Allah because some say that ba in the basmalah is the ba of isti'ana, is that we are seeking the assistance of Allah, the name of Allah, Jalla Jalalu, the Rahman and the Rahim, to enter into this affair. Recognizing is that He is the originator and He is the sustainer, subhanahu wa ta'ala, of the heavens and the earth. And then naturally, that the first thing that we want to do after that recognition is to praise Him. Why? Because that were it not to be for Him, we wouldn't be able to do that very affair that we are embarking upon. So we always want to that praise Him, subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, because He is the one who is deserving to, of praise. And so when He says here that, Alhamdulillah, wali alhamdi, all praise is to the one who deserves all praise. What does he then say which sets the tone for the very text that he is going to write? He is the one that um, gives this enabling grace that allows humankind to attain rushd. And rushd is similar to hidayah. It's one of the words for guidance and that we have to recognize is that all rushd, all guidance ultimately is from the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they say that tawfiq is aziz this is of the one of the duas that many of the great scholars during the life of Marabat al-Hajj radiallahu anhu Allah have mercy upon his soul is that he used to make this dua almost every time he was asked for dua. He'll make dua for tawfiq and afia, Tawfiq and afia, Because that if Allah wa ta'ala gives you tawfiq, 
It doesn't matter where you are on the face of this earth. It doesn't matter what environment that you're in or what society that you live, what time that you live in. If Allah gives you tawfiq, He will open up the doors for you to be guided. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is something that we should always ask Allah for. Ask Allah for tawfiq. And that this is essentially an enabling grace that allows us to do that what our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us to do and encouraged us to do subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the second line, This is clarifying what type of praise and for what He has bestowed upon us, a praise that encompasses the earth and the sky. All of the blessings that come down from the sky and that we witness in the sky and all of the blessings that are here on earth. In other words, from east to west, from the sky to the earth and everything in between. A comprehensive praise of Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then of course is that we send salawat upon Sayyidina Muhammad because after recognizing that Allah is the originator and that everything exists because of Him and praising Him is that the link between us and our Lord is our Prophet ﷺ. He is the means whereby which is that we come to know Allah. He is the means whereby which is that we draw near to Allah. Were not to be for our Prophet ﷺ, we would not know what our Lord Taala wants from us. Wabat. This is a word that indicates now he's going to get into the subject that he is that speaking on. Fat-ta'dibu, and this is how he starts. Fat-ta'dibu lisibyani. And that know that education, ta'dib of children, he chooses to translate ta'dib as education. And he does recognize that ta'dib is not a word that is easily translated, it is that broader than education in the way that we normally think of it. Education, yes, conveys some of the meaning of ta'dib. But ta'dib is a really comprehensive, incredibly beautiful word. And that he wants to state what this text is all about. Ta'dibu lisibyani. That the education of children, min awwali nishwi, from the initial stages, literally from the time that, from the earliest stages of their growth and development, atemmushani is a great affair. And if we just pause here and think about this for a minute, and that atemmushani is that this is the greatest of affairs. This is the most important of all things. And unfortunately, is that this is not the way that people oftentimes think about raising children. Is that we all recognize that children are a responsibility. We all recognize that children are important. We all recognize is that we, they must be educated. But in this sense, that the Tetdib here is not just the way that oftentimes people think of their children, of getting them educated, i.e. finishing high school and going to college and getting a job. It is much beyond that. And when, you have, when you've seen societies that place an emphasis on Tetdib, is that you will come to that conclusion that this really is the most important thing of all. The whole reason that the heavens and the earth and everything else that Allah created exists is for the human being. The whole reason that 
we build institutions and have places of learning and read books and do all of these things, ultimately is for the human being. This whole affair is about human beings. And it's very easy to lose sight of that. This whole affair is about human beings and their transformation. And the process begins not only at birth of the child. In fact, as we will see here, the process begins even before the birth of the child. The process begins with the spouse that we choose. The process begins even before that with the way that we have chosen to live our lives and what it is that we want from life. So, is that he is, this is a, a very strong statement here, is that this is what it is really all about. There is an incredibly beautiful story um, that is titled the Rihlat um, al-Maghribi uh, ila Tarim, the um, Moroccan's visit to Tarim, and one of these, uh, in uh, the ninth century, there was a visit from a Moroccan to the sacred city of Tarim, and he had heard his father mention Tarim often, and for years, and then one time after performing the Hajj, he decided to go visit the people of Tarim. And it's a beautiful story of his narrative of visiting the city and everything it is that he experienced. But one of the great themes of this story, and I highly recommend everyone reads it, it's been translated by uh, Dr. Mustafa al-Bedoui, and it can be found in his book titled The Blessed Valley, which is... Um, I believe it's, it's, it's available uh, for purchase. And you'll, you'll see that the Moroccan's journey to Tarim, you'll see it as one of the chapters in that book. But one of the themes of the story is how much this society placed a focus on tarbiyah and ta'dib, on educating and raising children. And how that if, as we mentioned, this whole affair of the creation of the heavens and the earth is really there everything is about the human being, is that this whole affair ultimately is about human beings being raised properly, learning adab, so that they can fulfill their divine purpose, so they can fulfill their purpose here on this earth, that we know it, we have, that what it is that we've been created for. And as it is repeated all the time, Were it not to be for the murabbi, the, my caretaker, my spiritual, that uh, the one who spiritually trained me and nurtured me, I would not know my Lord. In other words, is that in order for someone to know Allah, they have to go through a process of tarbiyah. And one of the things that again, to really contextualize this and always bring it back to this point, this is one of the things that is extremely lacking in the modern world. And in fact, that you could say is that most things in the modern world completely uproot all that manifestations of tarbiyah and ta'dib. This is just part of the time in which we live. And that it happens in an incredibly subtle way. And there's no doubt means that, uh, that, um, that, that there's means by which that this is done. And it is important for us to know the time in which we live and to 
mitigate many of these harms. And that the problem is, though, as time progresses, it gets harder and harder to mitigate because it's becoming more and more pervasive. And um, we absolutely must mitigate that to the extent possible in relation to our own selves, but especially for our children. Because this is the greatest obligation of the parent of all upon the children that, that is beyond the obligation of protecting them in the outward sense is to preserve the fitra in that blessed child. This is the greatest obligation of all. And if parents can succeed in that, you are assisting your child then to fulfill his purpose here on earth, which is to know Allah Jalla Jalalu. But again, that has to be the frame. And we oftentimes forget that as parents. That is our number one duty, is to help our children come to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And very few people know this, and then even less actually live by this. But this has to be the greatest, the greatest frame through which we view all of those individual stages of the child and what it is that we do in the moment. And we will fall short and we will forget. But we always need to remind ourselves, this is what this whole affair is about. And in that regard, the father is absolutely important just as the mother is absolutely important. It is a team effort. This is not just something that is for the women. This is not just something that is for the men. This happens to be a sister's halaqa, yes, and those who are attending are women. However, is that this text is absolutely just as important for men to read as it is for women. It is an obligation upon both to make that same intention and that ideally that you that want the child to be receiving the best of all possibilities from both the male and the female, from both the father and the mother, the husband and the wife. So, know that the education ta'deeb of children from the initial stages is a great affair. And we're going to keep coming back to this point uh, throughout this text. And what he then does in his commentary, so we're looking on page 16 now, what he does is he has the text in red, and then he includes the commentary. Um, in the softback version, is it also page 16? Just so that I know. We're, it is page 16? Great. So he says, Ta'deeb, let's give a definition for this, is the process of giving someone adab. And now that we've been in Arabic class, is that uh, we're going to always go back to these root words, that this is the second form that fa'ala yufa'ilu, adaba yu'addibu, and that ta'dibun is the mustar, it's the verbal noun for adaba yu'addibu. Adab is this very comprehensive word. Last time we translated it as etiquette, comportment, propriety, manners, all of these different things, actually, and much, much more. And so adaba, which is the verb for ta'dib, which is the verbal noun, is this process of inculcating adab. You're giving someone adab. Actively, consciously, intentionally. So, is the process of giving someone adab. And notice here, it's a process. It's not something where all of a sudden, someone miraculously has adab. That adab is something that has to be 
that taught over a long period of time. And in fact, is that even when we're older, it still continues. Is that we're still taught adab by our parents. Sometimes we fall short and you're corrected by your mother or your father, or you're corrected by your teacher. And no matter how old we get, that we'll still be corrected. And sometimes, and it's a humbling experience, we're corrected by even our children. Because we've taught them what is the right thing to do. And then they see you, and they're wondering, like, wait a second, they told me the right thing to do was this. And then I see them doing this. And then they remind you. And this is something that is a great blessing. If that ever happens, is that we should respond with joy to our children. Not, you know, who do you think you're talking to? On the contrary, is that what if we, we just taught them twice fold over then that, oh, so now when you do the right thing, you've just taught them now that two wrongs. One, because you didn't put your knowledge into practice. And two, that you taught them that people should be punished when they do the right thing, which is not the truth. Is that we should be happy. And yes, there's adab involved in everything that we do and depending upon who that we're speaking to and there's a way of doing things. But we should actually be very happy if our parents, our children rather, remind us of things that we should be doing. So, he's going to put forth the definition of adab as, quote, putting something in its correct place. And that might not be the first definition that comes to mind because we just talked about manners and things of that nature. But if you really think about manners and comportment and propriety, what really is it? It is putting things in its proper place. And there is nothing that we can do, nothing, no act that we can do, except that there is a requisite adab that goes along with it. Adab relates to every single human act it relates to every single aspect of this deen. Every single individual point of creed that you learn, you're learning the adab of belief. Every single individual ruling that you learn in the sacred law, and all of the categories from the haram to what is wajib and everything in between, you're learning what is the adab of action. Every single point that you learn in relation to character and purification of the heart, you're learning what is the etiquette of how we should be in relation to our character. Adab is everything. It really is everything. And so it's putting things in its correct place. And again, to reiterate this point, and I mentioned this last week, is that what did that Sayyid Muhammad Naqib al-Atas, who will be quoted here in a short time, say when Sheikh Hamza asked him about what he felt was the greatest problem in the, in the modern world, he said, lack of adab. Because if we do not know the relationship of the creation to the Creator and how to understand the cosmos and the universe in we, which we live and how we should react and respond to and how we should relate to other human beings, how are you going to put things in its proper place if you don't know any of that? If you don't know how Allah relates to the universe and humankind, how are you going to be able to put things in their proper place? Is that you will continuously fall into error, even if in the short term that you think that you've got something right. And just because human beings can do amazing things, 
that have come from their own hands and their own smarts and intelligence and they think that as a result that it's a sign of their that success that's not necessarily the case and that's not the way that it was ever understood traditionally religiously material prowess that complicated sophisticated mind-blowing technology is absolutely not a sign of the divine favor and in fact is that when you relate it to what we view and how we view the end of time is that especially in the time in which we live when you understand religiously that how time relates to that what our prophet sallallahu that how the end of the signs of the end of time relate to what our prophet sallallahu that said that was going to happen that when the world is near to its end that why on earth would a religious person ever have such a view but this is rampant and sometimes muslims are just as bad if not worse than other people in this regard in relation to this perspective not that we are anti technology not that we ourselves don't use technology or we can't produce technology. However, is that in and of itself material prowess or anything, any manifestation of the material is simply not a sign of the divine favor. That on the contrary, is that the state of your heart, virtue, how you are, and that, that how reli- this is really the true sign. And so we really have an uphill battle, however, that we have to still do our best and that it is possible, even in our time, despite all of these difficulties. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows these difficulties through the effort that we put in, relying solely upon Allah, not our effort, to attain the highest degrees of closeness to Him. This is something that is possible for you and I, all of those in this room, those who are listening, anybody in our time. This is something that is possible. Despite our time, despite the difficulties, despite our human frailty, despite all of our problems and the struggles that we have with whatever, this is something that is possible. And we must believe that. And that the beauty here is, is that it's not about what we do, it's about how much effort we put in. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that He looks at the effort that we put in, not necessarily what it is that we actually accomplish or do. And so that the key here is, is to strive and struggle with this and to rely upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And He will be the one who gifts that great things to people who put in that effort, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, Adab is defined as putting something in its correct place. Um, That's a definition that we should highlight, underline, make note of, and try to memorize. It relates to putting something in its proper place. In this sense, it is used for training, as in the prophetic statement. So, cultivation, training, nurturing. The Prophet said, three things are not considered time-wasting. They're not considered to be of lahu. They're not considered to be a waste of time. The first is ta'dibur rajuli al-faras. Training, a man's training of a horse. So training a horse. And then muda'abatul ahl. That spending time playing with one's family, enjoying one's time with the family. And shooting arrows 
for practice. And his focus here is on the first part of this hadith, which <coughs> the word tadib is used here. And so he says the horse after tadib is no longer wild and unruly and has lost some of its lower impulses. An untrained wild horse, an undomesticated animal, <clears throat> how are you going to ride that particular horse? And that if you've ever been that in a place where that you've seen animals and that sometimes that you will see that wild horses, for instance, that no one's going to be able to ride. Because if you ever try to jump on the back of that horse, it's going to just bolt. It's going to try to, that if you walk behind it, kick you. That it might try to that lift its front legs up and to throw you off. There's all types of things it will do. But a trained horse is something very different. A trained horse is someone who knows how to obey commands. That if you tell the horse to go this way and there's sounds and it speeds up or that it slows down or it goes to the right or it goes to the left or whatever it is that you want to do. And you can train a horse that to a, that to a degree that is extremely precise in how it obeys your commands. And you can do this with all different types of animals. You could do this with falcons. You can do this with dogs and others as well. So the idea here is, <clears throat> is that there's a training that takes place. So it's no longer wild in that sense and unrefined. In other words, what is understood here is that if our children don't go through a process or any human being doesn't go through a process of tadib, they will be unrefined. They will be like the difference between that domesticated and undomesticated animal. We're not saying that human beings are like animals. We should have adab when we refer to them. But there is some degree of truth in this. So he now looks at the roots of this word adaba, which means to be invited to a wedding feast. It is connected to the word ma'duba. Ma'duba. At the feast, the eating utensils and seating arrangements should all be in specific places. This act of being precise in arrangements is the process of adab. And so, one of the great ways to learn adab really is through the process of eating as human beings are meant to eat. And again, if you look at the way that people used to be <coughs> in relation to eating family dinners and how it is that we eat food, it was very different. People did not have the pantries filled with food like the way that we have, where you go in and there's cookies and bars of different sorts and this and that and all different types of things to eat and all these different types of things. The most, for much of human history, people tended to eat meals at set times. And that this uncontrollable that snacking that is now overtaken us and has overtaken the lives of our children is that something that people just didn't used to do previously. And this is something that we have to mitigate. I'm not saying that there's something you eliminate but it's something that we have to try to mitigate and we should try to lessen that. We should try to make it, if it's going to happen, to be healthy snacks and so forth and so on. And all of us, as we all know, fall short. 
And this doesn't negate the times where, from time to time, that you take the children out and that you eat things that are not too healthy and that you reward them if they travel with you to a certain place and they've been very patient. You, there's times, of course, where you do things of that nature. Uh, but that's the exception and not necessarily the rule. But his point here is that this relationship between adab and food, because that the dinner table is one of those times that really it's a time to teach adab. And um, I'm very thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, for having grown up in a home where my mother was very strict about rules at the dinner table. And many of these etiquettes are etiquettes that span different religions and span different cultures and civilizations. Uh, they're common etiquettes, things like you don't begin eating until that everyone starts to eat. Or in that for Islam, you don't begin eating at the table until the most honorable or the oldest person at the table begins eating. That we have to teach our kids this. And now the tendency is, is that everyone just kind of gets their plate and they go off to wherever they're going. Right? And before the mom or the father can even get out of the kitchen and they cooked, everyone's done. And then they throw the dishes in the table and then they're out playing and wanting else and grab their candy or their ice cream, whatever else it is that they do spilling all over, making a mess, no adab, is that we should have family dinners. If we can't do it every night, we should do it from time to time. Where? Everyone, the food is placed out. Everyone sits at the table. And we say the du'as together for eating. And the oldest person or the most honorable person there begins. And then everyone else begins. And as we eat, that we, there's a way that we eat we eat with our right hand. We don't take big bites. We chew properly. We don't grab the food until we've finished the bite before. And so forth and so on. We don't stuff our food and stuff our mouths with food. And all of these different types of things. That this is very, very important. That we don't remain silent, nor are we too talkative. We have nice conversation at the dinner table. That no one gets up until everyone else is finished. Once everyone's done, people have certain duties. One person cleans the table, someone else cleans the dishes, someone else does this, someone else does that. If we do this regularly, this is one great, very practical way to teach adab. And I highly recommend um, getting the book of the Ihya al-Madin on the manners of eating. It's like a light blue cover and it's readily available. And uh, it's called The Manners of Eating. And uh, I forget which number, which book it is. Um, it's like 14 or something. It's somewhere, in, it's in the second quarter. No, maybe it's, uh, sorry. No, maybe it's book 11. Uh, but there's a comprehensive list of etiquettes that relate to eating. And you'd be so surprised, like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Like a whole book written on manners of eating. But I actually have a book. Um, that uh, George Washington wrote on civility and manners. And you would be surprised that how so many of these are exactly what we are taught in Islam and that the way that people even were here in this particular culture. I remember very clearly when I was young that going to dinner at my grandparents and, oh my goodness, 
right? They were very strict in terms of how you ate and manners at the dinner table. And my grandfather would not let you leave anything on the plate, not even a kernel or a seed from the bread, everything, right? If there was any sauce of any sort, he made people get bread and wipe it up and eat it. And, you know, that, that was just how people used to do things. So they're related. Adab relates to Ma'duba. And another way that they're related is that a banquet, a Ma'duba, just as it is gathering different types of food, is that likewise this word Adab gathers all of these different meanings. So um, those who attend the feast should show the correct eating and dress etiquette. As a result, Adab is more generally understood to mean placing something in its correct place or giving something or something its correct due. So putting something in its correct place or giving something its correct due. And then he starts to mention here. So we have Adab to our parents, Adab to the Qur'an, the Adab of eating, and so on and so forth. Um, I wanted to point uh, you all to another work as well that is really helpful in this regard. Uh, many of you heard of, have heard of the book, The Beginning of Guidance, by Imam al-Ghazali. He essentially uh, divides his book uh, into three parts. The first part relates to acts of obedience. The second part relates to acts of disobedience. And then the third part is all adab. It's all manners and character traits and that etiquettes that we're supposed to have. And so that he has about 14 or 15 pages filled of etiquettes. The etiquette with Allah, the etiquette of the scholar, the etiquette of the student, <coughs> excuse me, the etiquette of the child with parents, the etiquette with people you do not know, the etiquette, etiquettes with friends and brothers, the etiquette of friendship, the etiquette of acquaintances, and so forth and so on. And he just lists many of these etiquettes, and it's a really good, um, it's a really good starting point. Uh, there's another book called Adab al-Islam by Sheikh Abdul Fattah uh, Abu Ghudda, which has also been translated into English. Um, these are all books that we should have <coughs> on our shelves. And you don't have to read them all at once, but they're good to read. That uh, from And sometimes you, by the time that the child's older, is that maybe you want them to have read these books two or three times. And <coughs> we need to read them ourselves and to put them into practice because that these meanings are transferred best through osmosis, just by us being like that, and that those that are living with us, that following suit. So, uh, the beginning of guidance, the Adab of Islam, those, are, those are, are two very good books that you can add to your repertoire of books about Adab. <clears throat> the one who knows these etiquettes... So actually, sorry, I wanted to offer one more that, uh, definition of ta'dib. And this is the definition that Sheikh Abdullah <coughs> Basudan offers in his commentary on this text. He says that it is essentially disciplining the soul, riyadatun nafs, wa mahasan al-akhlaq, and adorning yourself with good character traits. So adab is essentially the process of disciplining your soul, adorning yourself with good character traits. And وَهُوَ الْإِنسَانِ فِي فَضِيلَةٍ مِنَ الْفَضَائِلِ 
is that it relates to that the process in each individual struggle that you go through to attain any virtue, this is what Tadib is. The process of attaining virtue, if you want to shorten it. And all of those individual struggles you that go through to learn and to implement and to exemplify adab, this is the process of Tadib. But this is why it is precisely so important. Because this is something that we spend our life doing. And we know is that there is no way to come to know Allah without adab. It is impossible to draw near to Allah without adab. It is impossible to be close to Rasulullah sallallahu without adab. And that some of the scholars said, have said, is that between us and the highest degree of closeness to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi is 147,000 veils. And each one of those veils is a veil that relates to adab. And the more adab that we have, the less veils there will be. If you want to be that type of person that has no veil between you and Rasulullah, the only way to do that is through adab. And spending our lives inculcating this in ourselves. But again, this book is about how to do this with children specifically. So then he says, the one who knows these etiquettes and implements them is called Adib. The translation of Adib is usually polite, cultured, and courteous. But again, it's much more than that. It's not just being polite. That's important. And that in this regard as well, is that, that Adab and ad, being Adib doesn't mean that you're weak. It does not mean that you are a pushover. It does not mean that you allow yourself to be taken advantage of. It does not mean that you allow yourself to be abused. It does not mean that you allow yourself to be bullied. On the contrary, is that proper adab in those situations is to carry yourself in a certain way so those things don't happen. And then if they do happen, that there is a relative degree of firmness that you have to have so that that doesn't happen anymore. And that's a topic in and of itself, but that's important to point out. It, this word adib is also used for that a man of letters who excels in penmanship and grammar. So an adib is also a person who is cultured and knows how to read and to write and is familiar with literature and things of this nature. We can, and this is why when we speak about adab, uh, in terms of a science, um, those books are in the other room over there. These tend to be books uh, where there's aphorisms and famous quotes and proverbs of, uh, the, of, of the Arab and that poetry and that, um, that prose and that sermons and things of this nature. We can see that adab in a general sense means knowing one's place and the place of others. So again, putting something in its correct place, this is another way of roughly defining it, knowing one's place and knowing the place of others. And so, this is absolutely essential. And again, this is being lost. I had an, an atheist professor you know, complain to me at UC Berkeley how he felt the students just don't have adab anymore. And that he was an atheist, but he... that was a person that cared 
despite his beliefs, and that I used to always address him with respect because he's a professor. So you're supposed to address your perfect professor with respect, even if he's an atheist. And this touched him. And he pulled me aside one day, and we were talking, and we actually had a very good rapport. He invited me to his house, and it was a bit interesting. But anyhow, uh, he opened up to me and was just saying, I just, I can't believe these college students anymore. He said, they send me emails, and it's just broken English and informal, and hey, prof, da 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 and you know, probably not even complete sentences and who knows what else and not capitalizing anything and and don't even know how to address a professor anymore. And that um, there are, th- you know, things that even go well beyond this. But th- th- this is something that, that a lot of people are actually troubled by. So, he then is going to quote Sayyid Muhammad Naqib al-Atas, who's one of the great minds of our time, He's a Sayyid from Ahl Bayt, from the Ba'alwi, Ali al-Atas, a descendant of Habib Abdullah bin Muhsin al-Atas, one of the great awliya who's buried in, is it Bukhur? Bukhur? Right? Uh, and um, uh, and um, that uh, he, he lives in Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia. And he has, he has quite a few books. Um, some of them I have here, they're very good books. So he says in one of his books titled Aims and Objectives of Islamic Education, the fundamental element inherent in the concept of education in Islam is the inculcation of adab, ta'deeb. Allahu Akbar. This is amazing. So in other words, is that if we're going to speak about Islamic studies, if we're going to speak about education, we're going to speak about pedagogy, we're going to speak about that, that learning objectives, we're going to speak about that what we want students to be like when they graduate, it all revolves around this. Now, you could have someone who becomes a doctor, they get their PhD, they've done postgraduate studies, and they have no adab whatsoever. This is something that is no longer emphasized Western people realize, everyone will say like, oh, most people will say, of course I want my kids to have adab. But the system itself is not, for the most part, unless you happen to have a one-off good teacher or there's remnants of people who still kind of care. But the system itself is not going to teach anyone, ourselves or our children, adab. That you can get a degree and have no adab whatsoever. But it is inconceivable that when things are put in their proper place, to have someone who's been educated Islamically and not have adab. It's inconceivable. Their knowledge will be put into question. They would, they would be put into question. And in most places, still to this day to some degree, is that they would never have a teaching position. If you think about the quality of teachers, I remember this in Mauritania. Mauritania, there'd be hundreds of graduates in that sense. They don't graduate in the sense that we do now because they study for <coughs> extended periods of time. It's oftentimes informal. But there are people becoming scholars regularly. But it is only, I don't even <coughs> know what the percentage is, but I would imagine 1 to 200, maybe 1 to 500, Allahu Adam that end up ever actually even teaching. 
because there's so many scholars. So you're looking at 1% or really a fraction of 1% of people who then are actually responsible for training the future generation. What does that mean? You are talking about the cream of the crop, the best of the best of the best, the elect of the elect of the elect. And so when you're talking about having hundreds, if not thousands of scholars in any given region, is that if every, anyone was ever known for having a lack of adab, they would never make it to that point where they would have a teaching position where then they would be responsible for bringing up the gender. They wouldn't make it. They would be sifted out just by virtue of there being so many people that are like that. Now, it doesn't mean that there haven't been what are known as ulama asuq, evil scholars to our history. They have been. And that the scholars have that attacked them and spoken out against them. So, it's not to say this has never happened. However, this is an important point to point out. So, the fundamental element inherent in the concept of education in Islam is the inculcation of adab, for it is adab in the all-inclusive sense, I mean, as encompassing the spiritual material life of a man that instills the quality of goodness sought after. These spiritual and societal dimensions of adab have their roots in the Qur'an, and in this sense, the adopting of culture, the training of the lower self, and learning of appropriate behavior, all drawn from the Qur'an and the behavior of the Prophet ﷺ. He said, Adabani Rabbi, my Lord gave me adab. My Lord Himself inculcated in me adab, and excelled in the giving of my adab, and did so in the greatest of ways. With ihsan, is that He gave me this adab, subhanahu wa ta'ala, Imam Yusuf al Nabahani, in his book on Shama'il, he mentions this hadith and mentions how Allah taught the Prophet adab. Wasallam, directly through his book subhanahu wa ta'ala and he it starts to list verse after verse after verse after verse after verse as an example of how exactly Allah taught our Prophet that adab through the Quran in other words everything that the Prophet did was regulated by the adab that he had learned from the book of Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala and so and he said wasallam, the Quran is Allah's ma'duba. It's a hadith. Is that the Quran is the ma'duba of Allah. So it's just interesting here to note that how the two are related. The Prophet himself and the Quran, we all know that, that he was the walking Quran. But then how is that the Quran itself being described as a ma'duba, a every individual verse teaches you as a human being, the adab that you need to have before Allah and that before His creation. And so, uh, inshallah ta'ala, we will um, uh, stop here. Um, and so, we, we stopped on the, the first paragraph on page uh, 17. And we will continue on. And uh, we can open up the floor for any questions or comments, if there are any.